Hello there, and welcome to Washed Up with me, Seb Lark. This week, I'm talking to the wonderful Mr. Craig Carpenter. Craig played bass for indie pop rock sensation Catchers and his very own band, Bushcraft. He's got some fantastic stories about life on the road and just being part of the music industry in general. And I'm really excited for you to listen to them. So without further ado, let's crack on with the show. Welcome to the very first episode of Washed Up. Now, I feel like the first question has to be, because when I told you about the title yesterday, you laughed and said, don't talk about it now, let's talk about it on the show. How do you feel about the name Washed Up? For me, uh, I find that uh, quite funny. Uh, I suppose if I was sitting here thinking, oh, what, what a what a sort of wasteful, uh, non-eventful music career I had, then I might find it difficult to deal with. But I don't feel like that at all. I am, you know, that, you know, I had, I had my period of doing music and I had a great time. Yeah, it's, it's funny. You shouldn't really care about things like that at my age, really. You're being washed up. I mean, what does that mean? You were a huge inspiration, to, honestly, on, on this show because you are one of the people who really made me understand that having a fulfilled career in music, necessarily the most enjoyable bit for you, wasn't when you were at your, quote, sort of most, not successful, but your most, I guess, famous, your most popular within cultural music mm. was when you were playing for catchers. And yet you might not describe that as your most interesting or your most fulfilled part of your music career as much as i was appreciative of being in the catches because that was my first time being signed that definitely was not the most enjoyable uh, i love them all dearly they're great people but it wasn't you know i wasn't really getting a buzz out of it so much and, and actually just being signed and kind of realizing what being signed meant in the corporate world of music business was just a bit of a disappointment to me actually and I just want you know just wasn't working for me so actually yeah outside of that I had a much better time doing music so but you know they're lovely <laughs> they're lovely people and they wrote great songs and and I wasn't part of the writing team in that and that was fine I was there as a player and uh, I got a sort of small amount of money each week which was more than I ever got for any other band that I was in. So at the time, it was probably quite a good thing. But, you know, it wasn't, yeah, it just wasn't me really being in that band. But they, they were nice people. So yeah. Exactly how many bands have you been in at this point? I mean, at that stage, I was in The Catches, but I also had my own band, Bushcraft. I was also in a band called Thrill Seeker with Fuzz from Silverfish. I was in a band called The Falling Idols and a sort of covers band called Rubelli's Review. So, yeah, they're all kind of going. And I was in a reggae band called uh, The Imposters. So there was all sorts of stuff going oh, on. Oh, wow, you're doing quite the juggling act. Yeah, yeah. And I, had a, I was running a studio. So I was running like a little analogue studio uh, in Holloway in North London. And, um, yeah, my whole life was about music at that point. Although I was always skin. It was fun. But um, yeah, I was always skin and I'm not very healthy, to be honest. I had a good studio tan, which was very pale and drank loads of black coffee. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, really. It's just, yeah, it was good fun. Though. Yeah. I was going to ask you, actually, because it's something that I don't think I've ever asked you before. And it's just a really interesting concept to me. So Catch is a, is it, I believe, did you join in 1995? 
Uh, I think it was 97, actually. I'm not sure. But actually, maybe it was 95. Yeah, you, yeah you're probably right, actually. Yeah. It was before I met my present partner. Yeah, so it's probably 95. It's basically, uh, it was to do their second album, Stooping to Fit, because they had lost their bass player from the first album, and then they needed a new bass player. And because of the reggae band I was in, I was in this reggae band called The Imposters, and part of The Imposters were road crew for Dr. Feelgood, and Dr. Feelgood were linked for some reason to... Oh, yeah, because they were also road crew for Satanta Records, which was um, who the catchers were on. So one of the guys in uh, Imposters said, do you want to see if you can play for the catchers? I'll get you an audition. And I, at that stage, was like, yeah, I need some money. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so is it an audition process? Yeah, yeah. They auditioned me and they liked me. And then I was kind of in. I was in straight away. I remember I got, I, I, was, I was told, yeah, you, you, you're in the band. And then, but you're going to Paris tomorrow and there's a gig tomorrow night. So overnight, I had to learn the catches set. And I remember just staying up all night, surrounded by paperwork, trying to note down all the songs and then when we got to Paris we played this big gig in um, somewhere in Sacre Coeur um, it's a beautiful venue but I had all their songs written in pa on paper around my feet <laughs> so I was playing the gig panicking thinking oh god I hope I get it right but I managed to pull it off so it was all right yeah was that your first like really big gig first big gig with them I mean I I played fairly big gigs not fairly big gigs. I played kind of marquee gigs and things like that in London. Marquee was quite a good place to play, but I played there earlier in my career. Yeah, that was a proper gig because it was a big venue in Paris and there was a lot of people in that audience because the uh, catches were, you know, they were popular in France. So Yeah, I was going to say, because they, they were huge in France. Obviously, Mute was massive and it won the listeners and journalists poll for Les In Les which I believe is how that's probably not pronounced. They were supporting Oasis and Pulp and stuff like that. And did it feel like a lot of pressure coming into that? Uh, yeah, a little bit. I, I, don't, I mean, I came into it very willingly. It didn't feel like a lot of pressure until that first gig, actually. Then I realised I, I kind of what the whole... You know, I suppose I, I was suddenly aware of what the music industry was, which is it's business, you know, it's big business and uh, you've got to be really professional. And up until that point, music for me had just been like, oh, just go and play gig and have a laugh um, and enjoy yourself. So, yeah, that was my first sort of uh, eye-opening thing of, you know, oh, my God, this is actually quite serious. And, uh, and actually the band were quite serious about it. They were lovely, um, but Dale, the main writer, he was a serious dude. And I found it all a bit like, oh, this isn't very rock and roll, <laughs> you know, because I'd been used to the idea that it's all just going to be a good, you know, good laugh, but it wasn't. But it was it was cool. It was a good gig, and, and I was impressed with the, the professionalism of it all. And I'd never had, you know, I was playing on stage and, I had a bass tech, you know, someone coming on and sorting me out and stuff like that. That never happened to me before. I had to always set up my stuff myself. Just having someone set up your gear and then you just walk on and play was so weird to me. So, yeah. You said that you, you didn't get to make a lot of creative input, I guess, on Stooping to Fit. No. But you were a part of the album. And 
were you really proud when Stooping to Fit came out or are you more proud of other albums? I was proud of, there's a track on there, there's a couple of tracks on there. I mean, I, I, I wrote, I, I wrote all the bass lines, but they weren't particularly stretching. But there was one track called Ribbons, which, um, yeah, I really liked the bass line on that. And actually, I was really proud of that one. Yeah, I was proud of it as an album. It was just so different to what I'd been used to. I mean, Dale's got such a beautiful voice. And actually, when I, I probably appreciate that album more now than I did then, because now I can kind of, you know, I think then I was slightly immature and still wrapped up in the world of rock music and that's all i wanted to do i just wanted to bang my head and play rock music and obviously catches were an indie band and and it was all very sweet a lot of it and uh, that's probably what wasn't doing it for me at the time but ribbons on that track had a moment where yeah i could i felt i, I could let go a bit you know so playing that track live was always good for me so so stooping to fit was released and it it went down really, really, really well, actually, um, critically at least. And yeah. then you're doing a 15-day headline tour of France. Was that your first like time touring big time like that? Or were you touring yeah. from the moment you joined? We weren't touring. We were doing um, sort of one-off gigs from the moment I joined. But yeah, that was my first big tour, I think. I'm not sure if that's the one where we went to Saint-Michel and played with Gomez. I'm not sure. But yeah, there was kind of, yeah. There's a lot of gigs, and um, it was my first time of being in a tour bus for any length of time <laughs> with people that I didn't really know that well, which was interesting. Um, but yeah, it's kind of it was good. It was it was a nice, it was a really nice tour actually. I didn't I didn't feel I didn't come away come back from that thinking oh I don't want to do that again. I actually came back having enjoyed myself, but I was just yeah, I was kind of missing rock music. <laughs> so I keep thinking back to it, thinking, yeah, I was just missing rock music. I was really missing going there with music, which is kind of what I needed at that point in my life and I'd had at that point in my life up until I joined them. So it's all very, I had to be very controlled and, and, and sort of hold back a bit. But, you know, it's a good lesson for me. As someone who'd love music, I mean, all their life and, probably had aspired to be a professional musician for all that life what aspects of life on the road really lived up to your expectations and which were just like completely different the gigs themselves always lived up to the expectations even when a gig went wrong this is why i was thinking about you know the the band that i took on on tour a lot after catches which was bushcraft all the gigs that kind of went wrong where you know half the pa go down or you break three strings in the first three songs or whatever you know they were always the gigs that seemed to be the best gigs because you always seem to enter this sort of mindset where you know you you had to do it you had to perform uh, and so it was just kind of you're against the machine basically so the actual gigs were the best thing about it what the, the things that i didn't expect to be such a drag were there's a thing you have to do when you gig where you go for the sound check and often your sound checks at like six o'clock or something like that. You might not be on stage till 10 o'clock. Sometimes you might not be on stage till two in the morning. So you've got this whole period of time in between sound check and being on stage where you just got to, oh, what am I going to do? If I eat too much, I'm going to be really tired. I can't get drunk because then I won't play the gig properly. So it's just kind of, 
it's dead time that is really really boring i have to say it's, it's a real trial to know how to get through that and i think every musician i know has the same thing you know they always say god i hate that bit and um, maybe some some have managed to nail what to do in that time but for me it was always like oh, i just want to play the gig you know or i you know i just i, I don't care if we go on at eight o'clock you know i really don't i know it's not very rock and roll but you know at least i'm in the mood to play the gig because often you would get to the points of playing the gig and you think oh god i'm really tired or you know i'm not i'm just not in the mood for this now but obviously once you start playing you have to be in the mood for it and that is part of being a professional musician i suppose you have to learn the discipline of it all but yeah i found that a bit hard and obviously being in a tour bus is is okay at times but other times it's you know it's the last people you want to see when you get up (laughs) in the morning and you just spent the last 12 days with them in the bus doing the same thing, touring around Europe. And you think, oh, really? <laughs> I just don't want to see your face right now. But that's part of it as well. So, you know, that's the worst aspect of it, really, was, yeah, that 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 piece of time in between soundcheck and gigging it used to drive me crazy. So When you look back at the big bands that you've seen, because, I, I mean, it's something that I've spoken to you about so much. It was one of the things I really just used to love listening to hear you talk about because i mean some of these bands are bands that i might not ever well i I won't have the opportunity to ever hear or see live and and i guess a lot of people listening will also have that same feeling i mean you told me you've seen nirvana you knew people from silverfish you're in a band that's opening for i mean even oasis which aren't even a thing anymore do you think it's funny to think that they also despite this huge rock and roll image are probably still sat waiting bored in the gap between soundjack and their gig yeah absolutely i've never met anyone who hasn't found that that part boring it's kind of, it's like dead it's like the dead zone it's a dead time you, you know thinking uh, maybe maybe some people have really nailed it maybe they just play pool or something i i don't know i never had access to a pool table <laughs> at that period of time maybe that would have been the, the way to go or maybe nowadays people you know do gaming or whatever you know i'm not sure how it would work now but it's still the same process. I remember with Bushcraft, we had one gig where we soundtracked at five in the afternoon and we went on at four in the morning. This was in Serbia. So I had like nine hours to kill, you know, or whatever that is. You know, that's not even on there. It's more than that. But yeah. So it's just like, oh, but I should have probably just had a sleep. Rather than just, <laughs> just had a nap. I just <laughs> wandered around the, the festival for five hours instead which was probably a bad idea, but I don't know. I got to see Burning Spear, so that didn't really matter. (laughs) Yeah. The album, Stupid Fit, was critically a massive success. Time Out, they called it a wonderfully crafted piece of song smithery. That was Time Out. The Times called it a soft-spoken masterpiece, but for some reason, Satanta Satanta does a bit of a shit show of promoting it, and it, it just kind of kind of flops yeah i mean kind of what happened at that point subsequent i mean i've kind of learned this since since you know only a few years ago but satanta were in dire straits financially at that point and they were relying on divine comedy to pull the money in because divine comedy was their main act and edwin collins was their other main act edwin collins kind of had his time and he i think he was also ill at that time he was getting ill because he became quite ill with something i can't remember what but divine comedy were doing huge tours with a lot of people as part of the tour like you know an orchestra to go with them which was really expensive for 
the record companies. So basically, they were losing money on Divine Comedy, although the tours were going well for them. So they weren't ploughing any money into other bands on the label. And basically, after Edwin Collins and Divine Comedy, I think Catches were third in line. And then there was a band called Pelvis and then the American band called Verbena. So basically, you know, they, they, they spent the last of their money on getting us to record Stooping to Fit. You know, that was the last of their money for us and unbeknownst to us so that then they had no money to promote it. And uh, I, I just think at that point, Keith, who was running Satanta, was just giving up. He was just saying, oh, I can't be bothered to do this anymore because it was just becoming too much. So, yeah, <laughs> it all kind of flopped pretty badly, which was a shame. It was, uh, no, for me, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't so bad, but I felt for Dale and Alice, who were, who were the main writers in the catches, or well, Dale particularly, because he had really put his heart and soul into it and um, he wasn't getting anything back. We were supposed to record that album in America and that had already been denied. So we recorded it at um, Cocteau Twin Studio in Kingston, which was fine. But, you know, it wasn't quite what you wanted. But then basically it was just kind of almost dropped, really. I mean, you know, that's what happened. And it is a really good album. Yeah, it is a good album. It is. <laughs> so, I do, you know, it's, it's a shame. But, you know, that happens all the time in the music industry. Or well, it did then because basically... It's about what makes money and what's not making money. And we weren't making money for Satanta. And they didn't have enough money to promote us to try and make them money, if you know what I mean. It was just, it was just, they, they were struggling as a record label and they were obviously getting no, although Satanta was kind of linked with Sony, I think, they weren't getting any money from them. So it was just pretty rubbish, pretty rubbish for Dale more than anyone. And, um, I think he was, yeah, affected quite badly with that whole situation for quite a while. So he was really pissed off. Moving on from that, it's one of those things that people talk about a lot. Do you think that it's easier for artists to rise up now that everyone can self-promote through this kind of human raw consciousness and just expose themselves to it and people like it or they don't? Or do you think that there's just so much noise and so many people are making stuff that it's hard to get heard. No, I think the opposite. I think it is easier for people to rise up now. I mean, it depends how good you are at promoting yourself and you have to be... I think the difficulty is that, yeah, there is so many bands out there promoting themselves, but you just have to be that much better. And at the end of the day, good music is good music. So, you know, if you can get heard and you, you write great songs, then, you know, hopefully you might get somewhere. But yeah, I think it's easier now because in those days, you know, to promote yourself as a band in America, if you were over here, it was impossible, you know, unless you went over to America and you promoted yourself physically by putting posters up and, and, and getting local radio stations to say, oh, now we have a new band from you know, the UK or whatever. You know, you don't have to do that now. You can promote yourself from your tiny little bedroom in Edmonton, you know what I mean? and and somebody might offer you a tour in Japan. You know, that's what's great about nowadays. And do you think that's a real improvement? Yeah, I do. I think it's much better. And also, it's it's not relying on the record companies. I mean, I, I don't even know what a record company does these days, or, you know, um, whether they're even that relevant. Because, you know, artists, from what I've heard, artists don't really make any money on record sales anymore because most albums end up 
as part of a Spotify playlist. And, uh, you know, that's how people listen to music now. So basically, mo most artists make their money from touring and merchandise, which is the right thing as far as I'm concerned, you know, because touring is, you know, live music is a great thing. In order to get that tour and, um, you know, go places, they have to promote themselves on the web or whatever, which is all there easily to, you know, it's, you can do it. And you might get some exposure on, on radio stations as well. You know, it depends. But yeah, I think it's much easier now for people than it was then. In those days, you relied on a record company to promote you. And that's where a lot of your money, so if you were given an advance as a signed artist, that that would be taken back from you once you started selling records um, but that a lot of that money went towards promoting you in different places so you know you can do that yourself now you don't need to spend that money so i think that's a good thing after catches or i'm i'm presume i'm always saying it wrong i don't know if it's catches or the catches it's catches yeah i i always made that i used to make that mistake all the time even when i was in the band now and, and i remember dale saying to me really how, how long have you been in the band? And we're going, it's not the catches, it's catches. Okay, sorry. It's catches. Oh, so. Then you started Bushcraft. Were you already in Bushcraft at that point and it, and it became more successful? Bushcraft basically started off from my studio. It was three people, me, Jeffrey and Richard, who were, we were all really good friends and we played in lots of stuff together over the years. We set up this kind of band which uh, was just us using all the recording equipment and jamming out for like half an hour, 45 minutes and stuff, just recording it all the time. And it was just, that's what it was. And then we wrote an album together and we should, you know, it was okay. But, you know, we weren't really doing anything apart from being in a studio. And then I joined the Catchers and that, that kind of fell apart. But it was always there. And then after the Catchers broke up, and Jeffrey and I tried to get it back together again. And then we met a singer. And then basically we got the band back together properly. And we started, we wrote a bunch of songs. Uh, we started touring in England, and then Jeffrey left, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then then the band changed again. Rich came back from abroad and joined the band, and blah blah blah. Uh, but yeah, we we it, we wrote a bunch of songs, and then we started touring. We got a manager, and we started touring. We got a promoter in Prague, and then we started touring in Europe. And basically, we spent the next six years touring around Europe, off and on. You know, coming back to work. To, to make money out of whatever we could make money out of, like decorating or whatever, and then go on tour again as soon as we had enough money to go on tour. So, yeah. We didn't really have any following in England because we didn't really gig in England, but we, we had quite a lot of people in Czech Republic, Serbia, Croatia, uh, Germany, Holland, who liked us. So that's where we spent most of our time touring. So we had a really good time. I mean, we made no money whatsoever, but we played great gigs out there. This is what I'm saying about, you know, you want to, you ask me what it's like to, whether I'm offended by, you know, washed up. I will never be offended by that because um, I, I kind of had, I had everything you could possibly want out of a 
rock and roll experience, which is those days really, which is apart from making money, I, I kind of did everything else. I, I played loads of lovely gigs, had a really good time touring and really bad time touring at the same time, which is all part of it. You know, that that's what I did for six years and I have no regrets about it whatsoever. What's your highlight of that six years? If you had to pick one, or maybe you can't. Highlights were just really odd gigs. There was a gig in um, Czech Republic. I remember we just turned up and it was snowing. It was like a really cold Eastern European winter. And we turned up this really weird place. Um, it was like blocks of flats with a quad in the middle. I'm thinking, where's where are we supposed to be playing? And then this guy opened this door from the ground and, and popped up and said, oh, come with me. And we went down like a hundred foot down into this kind of nuclear basement, you know, this kind of underground venue where it used to be kind of a anti-nuclear place. There was an amazing venue in this middle of nowhere. Um, so gigs like that for me were my highlights. And yeah, playing Serbia Echo Festival, which was huge, huge gig for us. And yeah, lots of festivals in Europe. And in Europe, people really look after you. You always get fed. You don't always get paid. Well, you you always get something, but you always get fed and watered and, and looked after, which wasn't really happening in England in those days. I don't know if it really happens now. I mean, England's pretty crap at feeding people <laughs> and accommodating them. Yeah, on, on the small level gigs, yeah, whereas Europe's completely opposite. You always get looked after. So that's why going to Europe was so much nicer than gigging in England, really. And do you think that's why a lot of bands focus, despite being in, in the UK, which is supposed to be this kind of hub of music, do you think that's why a lot of British bands do focus on touring through Europe, just because it's a nicer place to be? Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, like, Britain is a hub of musical kind of creativity. It is, it's great for that. But, yeah, it's like, it's an overload of bands in this country. If you, if you go and play a gig now or on a gig night, I mean, you could be playing with six bands who all get 20 minutes each or something. It's just like, well, it's just really crammed. <laughs> but that's the only way the promoter can make money. He's never going to have enough money for him to really give you anything at the end of the day with all the small gigs. I think a lot of bands will go to Europe, yeah, for that reason. They'll, 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 they'll get looked after well, you know, and it it's just takes the edge off. Because if you've been in a tour bus for ages, touring around England and you turn up to a venue and you basically don't get any food or don't get any money, you end up thinking, what, what, what am I doing this for? If you, you just need someone to feed you and you'll probably be all right, you know, and give you one drink, that's fine. You know, that kind of makes up for things. But if you don't even get that, it, it just feels like, oh, it's just such a waste of time. <laughs> you know what I mean? This is after I've waited five hours to go on stage to play the gig. They don't even give me a drink. Touring in Europe's nice. And, and plus you get to see Europe, which is kind of cool. Did you release an album with Bushcraft? No, we didn't. We, we sold loads of stuff at gigs, but did we release it? No, we just we would just sell whatever we'd come up with at that time. I was always recording albums at home, but we didn't release them. We just kind of sold them at gigs. You know, that was it. So someone's listening to this and they think, I want to listen to a bit of Bushcraft. Is there anywhere they can find that? Uh, you, you might find a video on YouTube, I'm not sure. That's so cool. I kind of like that. Yeah, I, I, I don't really, you know, that was then. It, it's now. I might put something out at some point, but, you know, I'm not really, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. Happy searching. There were some people in Czech Republic who put some videos out and stuff. 
but you know whether they're still there or not sure coming more towards now you go from well i mean that's almost 10 years of full-time music potentially more than that and now you're 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 a fantastic painter i mean that's how i met you you're you're a master painter you know i've seen you turn a piece of plywood into a piece of sort of veneer in 10 minutes with a scrunched up paper bag how what was that change was it an instant thing did you turn around and say one day you know what i think i just want to do something else or was it just a gradual moving you know there's less time for gigs you're making more money doing something different so you just kind of edge towards that well what that was was when i was because i'm 52 now so when i was 38 we quit bushcraft we kind of had this last talk and um it became the last tour because we all kind of fell out. And I think we just had so much of being in the tour bus together. We were just sick of each other. What we should have done in retrospect was probably just said, let's just take a year out and then just reconsider in a year's time. But I was I was at the, like a melting point where I was just like, I've had enough of this. So I just called it at that point and I said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And um, we'd been coming back from touring and just... I'd been decorating people's houses to make money, you know, just get my little bit of pocket money together. And um, I was a good painter. <laughs> so that's what I discovered with myself. So after that, when we sort of split up, I, I knew some people in the film industry who were in art department and I went, got a bit of work with them. And then I saw the scenic painters doing their thing and I thought, I reckon I can do that. And I asked them if I could have a go with them. And some of them were nice enough to let me come along with some of their jobs. And I just picked it up straight away. And um, then I became a scenic painter. It was kind of lucky, but I was kind of skilled as a painter already. So I just had to learn the really arty-farty stuff to, to get to know how to do it. But it was fine. You know, I just found it quite easy. And then, then I, you know, got lucky with a couple of people who, you know, who offered me, you know, loads of work. So that's what happened. What aspect of your life or what aspects of your life would you say have improved the most or are the most different or you're the most happy with since you've changed from being in full-time music to doing something different? Well, obviously, I've got some money now, <laughs> which helps. <laughs> so, And I can sort of hold my head high and not sort of rely on the benevolence of others to help me out at Christmas and times like that. So that that's a major bonus. Also... Now, for music, actually, you know, I kind of play in a little rock steady band with old friends and I kind of appreciate what I used to appreciate with music when I was really young, which is just really enjoying playing music. I mean, I think the problem with after the catches and then that whole period with Bushcraft, as great as it was, there was this kind of underlying thing that, you know, we all kind of wanted to make it and actually... I don't really think that's a great thing to be doing with music now. You should just really enjoy playing music. You know, as with any art, it should be enjoyable. Otherwise, it's not really art anymore. It's more like, yeah, something business that you're trying to aspire to. You know, as soon as art tries to make money, it just kind of ruins it. So now, yeah, music, I, I, I love playing music now for all the reasons I did when I was young, which is, you know, I get together with my friends, we have a good laugh, we, we might play the odd gig every three months if we can get it together and you know usually in, in camden somewhere at the dublin castle or whatever and uh yeah that's that's the best thing actually i i, I really enjoy music now 
more than I have done for a lot a long time. So. so bizarrely, in a sense, you enjoy music more now doing it just as an enjoyment than you ever did doing it full time. Yeah. No, absolutely. Because, yeah, I think, you know, obviously it's a different stage of life. So, you know, there's there's other things to consider in life, you know. Um, and the other thing is after, after we sort of quit the band Bushcraft when I was 38, my partner and I, we just went traveling a lot. And I, I hadn't, you know, even though we've been traveling in a band, you know, we hadn't really just gone traveling and not had to do anything. But, you know, we, so we just went around and saw the world, which I hadn't done for, for years and that was important so you know now i can do both kind of i've got enough money to go on holiday and to play a gig with my mates so that's what's important i don't have to do anything you know what i mean and that's that's a, that's a that's part of life now so yeah i think it, obviously i've been lucky that i got a job which is a good job it's enjoyable i work with lovely people and um i get paid well but not everyone has that sort of privilege, but, you know, I've been quite lucky in that respect. I thought I'd end my delving into the life of a man who's been very kind in allowing me to do so by asking you a couple of sort of quick-fire questions <laughs> on, on music, on being a rock star, just quick. Okay. Let's bash them out. It's going to be great. Okay. Number one. Yeah. What do you have against the pan pipes? Oh, my God. I can't stand the pan pipes. I don't know what it is about them. It just reminds me of <laughs> awful, awful traveling in South America. You know, the worst part of going to South America was people popping up with pan pipes. <laughs> and, and while you're trying to, you know, get some money out the till at the bank or something, it's just like, go away. And, and I just don't like them. No, you know I hate them. So. Your hatred of the pan pipes is one of my favourite things <laughs> in the world. It just makes me so happy. Um, <laughs> Jesus, man, every time it really gets me. <laughs> Fuck. The second question I've got is staple rock star shit. You must have had some of the most apocalyptic hangovers in your time. I mean, I dread to think what has been flushed in and out of your system. Mm, yeah. Number one, what is your most memorable heavy, heavy night? part of music and what is your go-to hangover cure after a night like that okay uh my most memorable night was coming back from played a gig in serbia i think it was serbia i'll try and remember probably uh oh uh, uh, no it might have been hungry well it was one or two i can't remember and anyway we got paid in gherkins <laughs> because they're big in gherkins over there and drugs basically a big bag of pills and we were already drunk. We ate loads of gherkins. And um, we just, we were on the way to the airport at four in the morning. So, you know, we've got to get a plane at 6.15. Let's just neck all the drugs between us. And they're all different pills. No one really knew what they were taking, but we all evened them out and just took them. And then um, basically when we got to the airport, I remember we were walking through the initial customs bit to put our gear through. And everyone started coming up and uh, it was just an insane <laughs> night and getting on a plane and then had a food fight on the plane, really upset everyone. Um, and, you know, these days we'd probably be arrested for that because in those days they didn't have the rules that they have now. 
yeah, it was just awful. Yeah, got to London and I, I can't remember much about it apart from I'm amazed that we didn't get arrested at Heathrow Airport. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> that is everything I wanted from this show was a man telling the world how he got paid in gherkins and drugs. My go-to would always be, a hair of the dog's always important to get you through that. So it would be a fry-up and a beer that uh, afterwards. I know that might not sound the most appealing thing, but um, that's kind of, yeah, that would always sort me out. And then a good sleep. But uh, yeah, I mean, I had a few like that, but that was probably, yeah, the biggest, biggest one. <laughs> so, yeah. Lastly, what are you listening to right now? I'm not going to confine you even to artists or albums or genres. Just rattle off some names of things that people who've listened to this should should check out, in your opinion. Right now, Matsu Bons, which is a Japanese artist I'm listening to. I like him. Uh, I'm listening to a lot of older stuff like Clear Spot by Captain Beefheart, which is just one of my faves of all time. Can, uh, I, I listen to all the time. It's kind of a difficult one, isn't it? Because in your head, I'm listening to loads of stuff, but I can't remember. Tom Vec, Tom Vec's first album, which I'm surprised he's not huge in this country, but can't can't think of anything apart from that. I'll link all of those in the bottom of this and everyone can give them a listen. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to mention, uh, yeah, P.W. Long. That's who I really listen to quite a lot. So P.W. Long is kind of uh, from the grunge days because I know you like your grunge and he's kind of like a country and western grunge is he's like a sort of tom waits meets captain beefart meets something really heavy and nasty and drunk <laughs> so yeah pw long he should be checked out i'm definitely going to give that a listen i hope everyone else does too before we go it seems silly to ask you where we can expect to see you playing <laughs> given the circumstances uh, yeah. that was my plan that's not going to happen anytime soon well, you know, where should we keep an eye out for for Craig and his in, in your many bands? And is there any bands that you wanna you wanna talk about? You wanna shout out before we go and who, where you're playing? Hopefully, in the future. I have no idea where I'm playing in the future, but I I play in a rock steady band with old mates called Rock Steady Rockers, which is like anyone who knows rock steady music. It's like the the bit between ska music and reggae music, so it's kind of soulful ska music when ska music slowed down completely and became very influenced by american soul music so yeah uh, and we only ever seem to play at the dublin castle in camden because we're just so bad at getting it together it's a good band and it's good fun and you'll probably dance so you'll have to just look out on the dublin castle promotions and just see whether we're playing other than that i'm not i'm not playing with anyone which is fine <laughs> you know what i mean Thank you very, very much for, for coming on the show and for talking to me. And I'm really honoured to have you as the first guest of Washed Up. I'm honoured that you <laughs> accepted the name. Um, I feel like now that you've said it's okay, I can I can tell everyone that it's okay. Yeah. Just thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for having me, Seb. Um, yeah, it's been a pleasure. That was my interview with the very interesting Mr. Craig Carpenter. Thank you, Craig, for being on the show, and thank you guys for listening. I really hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. If you or anyone you know used to be in a rock band in the 90s or a punk band in the 80s or a grunge band in 1993, 
let me know. Email in at washeduptteam at gmail.com and I'd love to hear from you and get you on the show. Apart from that, thank you very much for listening and see you next time.